3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7am on Tuesday the 5th of September. My name is Ivka and I'm joined in the studio this morning with Fung and Carnegie. How are we going? Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, going well. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. Uh, how was everyone's weekend? Uh, oh, good. How, how beautiful was the weather? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was just so lovely to have to jump in and say it before anyone else does. <laughs> no, it was really nice. Um, also, one of my favourite podcasts um, run by two of my friends is coming back for season two and they had a beautiful event for it last night. Um, so that was a really nice nice thing to do as well. I saw lots of people I haven't seen in a long time and I'm excited for season two of Being Biracial. Oh yeah, because we've had, we've had them on the show before to talk about it. Yeah, and hopefully we'll have them back again. Um, yeah, they're tackling even more kind of um, intricate race-related issues in this upcoming season, so excited. Awesome, maybe we'll have to get them back on Certainly. to give us an update. Yeah. Did anyone else do anything exciting? Spent, tried to spend as much time outside as possible. Yeah. Mm, I feel all of my activities revolved around what I could do in the sun. <clears throat> so that was, that was quite nice. Went to Princess Park on Sunday and just sat by the pond. Heaven. Yeah, with me and everyone else in Melbourne, it seemed. Yeah. <laughs> it was lovely. Oh, you've got to make the most of it, you know, today. Yeah. <laughs> not going to be as nice. So yeah. if the weather says you don't need a jumper or a coat, just racing outside <laughs> in a t-shirt and just feeling really smug <laughs> for the next few hours. All right, let's talk about what's coming up on the show this morning. Okay, we're going to kick off our program with a discussion that I had with Sana, who is the coordinator of the Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth, as well as Emma, who is a primary school teacher. And uh, we had a chat over the weekend about the increased militarization of the school curriculum. You may have heard just now on the Radioactive show that Michaela also spoke to a couple of teachers about this issue. So um, it's really getting a lot of media attention, as it should, um, because there are so many dangers and risks involved with uh, these subs in schools programs. So, uh, yeah, I spoke to Sana and Emma about that. So we'll be playing a two-part interview uh, first up this morning. And then following that, we'll be speaking with uh, Jessica Graham from Monash University. Uh, Yesterday was World Sexual Health Day, and Jessica's research focuses on this year's theme for World Sexual Health Day, which is consent. So Jess will be talking to us about consent and rape culture. We will then, at 8 o'clock, be speaking with Jen Tran about an upcoming snuff puppet show called 100 Eggs, um, which is a a really good, I'm obsessed with the snuff puppets. So for me, really, really cool um, Vietnamese show coming up as a part of uh, the Snuff Fest in Footscray. And 
then at 8.15, we'll be joined uh, by Chloe, who joined us on the show last week. Chloe is a professional staff member of the Faculty of Arts at UniMelb and a delegate and health and safety rep for the arts and the vice president professional of the UniMelb NTEU branch. So uh, there's been a seven-day strike at Melbourne Uni over the last week and Chloe will be joining us to give us an update on how that all went down. So a pretty big show this morning and we will be right back with the news headlines after these messages. The fears are Palestinian staffs and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes for fears and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. These are our news headlines for this morning, Tuesday the 5th of September. The Yurok Justice Commission has called on the Victorian government to transform Victoria's child protection and criminal justice systems to address systemic injustice against First Peoples. The Truth-Telling Commission's Yurok for Justice report into Victoria's child protection and criminal justice systems tabled in Parliament yesterday, making 46 recommendations for reform. The report details extensive systemic injustice, racism, discriminatory laws and police failures that have and continue to cause harm to First Peoples. It highlights that present injustice has deep roots in the colonial foundations of the state. Recommendations include First Peoples must have decision-making power, authority, control and resources in the child protection and criminal justice systems as these relate to them. The Victorian government must uphold its commitment to self-determination through negotiation under the treaty process. You can read the entire report and all the recommendations at eurocforjustice.org.au slash recommendations. The license of a Perth real estate agent has been suspended after she sent a racist email to her Indian tenants. In May 2021, the agent sent a reply email to a former tenant of Indian background after he challenged a cleaning bill that was deducted from his initial security deposit. The email said that the real estate agent, as a white Australian, believes that the tenant and others coming to Australia want to enjoy a lovely way of life, as is enjoyed here, and a follow-up email from her said that hopefully the massive influx of Indian people will not turn our beautiful country into the filth that is India, where bodies are on the streets, half-burnt bodies are in the river, and people climb over each other for medical help while living in absolute slums. Her real estate agent and business agent license, a qualification necessary to buy, sell, lease, or manage real estate in Australia, will remain suspended for only an eight-month period. Um, In other news, fracking projects fast-tracked by the Australian government 
risk exposing people to cancer, birth defects, asthma, cardiovascular disease and other harms, according to a new report published on Monday. The report, led by the University of Sydney, was written in response to paediatricians in the Northern Territory who are deeply concerned about a full-scale fracking industry in the Beedaloo Basin. Drawing on evidence from projects overseas, the report synthesises more than 300 recent peer-reviewed scientific papers on the risks posed by oil and gas operations to biodiversity, water and food security, contributions to the climate emergency, potentially harmful chemicals involved, contamination of air and water, as well as wider health risks associated with the disruption of life near oil and gas fields. Some of the most damning evidence includes increased instances of heart failure, asthma hospitalizations, um, uh, blood cancer and birth defects in communities living near gas and oil exploration sites. In August, more than 2,000 doctors, GPs and health professionals signed a letter to the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, demanding the government reconsider subsidising the Middle Arm Project and quote, intervene to prevent gas fracking in the Beedaloo Basin, acknowledging that the emissions cannot be fully offset. An update from RMIT. So a stop work meeting by more than 250 NTU members at RMIT was joined by students and supporters on August 31st. The action was part of the NTU Victorian Division Strike Week, which began August 28, and was timed in conjunction with industrial actions at other university campuses across Nam. Union members are campaigning for a new enterprise agreement with real pay rises, more secure jobs and fair workloads, according to rank-and-file NTU RMIT branch members. It has been more than 700 days since the Higher Education Enterprise Agreement expired, 500 days since the Vocation Education Enterprise agreement expired and 1300 days since RMIT training enterprise agreement expired. The stop work passed a motion to undertake escalating industrial action and branch president Trisha McLaughlin announced that a 24-hour stop work is planned for September 13. The NTU will continue to take industrial action with a half-day strike planned for September 6, so that's tomorrow, and a rally outside of the university council meeting at 30 Collins Street in CBD from 12 to 1 p.m. And finally, residents in Victoria have created a petition for accessible tram stops on Sydney Road between Brunswick Road and Bakers Road in Coburg North. This is a five and a half kilometre stretch. Once the upfield line is closed to remove the Brunswick level crossings and build the Skyrail, there will be no accessible public transport along the upfield corridor for the duration of the project. The campaign is calling for supporters to back this petition and attend a community rally on Sunday the 17th of September at 1pm on the corner of Wilson Avenue and Sydney Road in Brunswick, opposite the Barclay Square Shopping Centre. We will link to the Facebook event as well as the online petition in our show notes later today. That brings us to the end of our news headlines. We are going to play you a track now. Uh, this song is from uh, by Jada Weasel. Jada uh, hails from the Aboriginal community of Wurrabinda in central Queensland and is now based in Nam. Uh, this debut EP was released last week and this track is from that EP called Hands of Addiction.
wasn't what we got Was everything we want Seen the way we run For feeling that we lost Don't know where we're going But there's no getting back to us track there was Hands of Addiction by Jada Weasel of her new uh, debut EP released last week called No Peace. To kick off our program this morning, we're going to share with you a two-part discussion that I had recently about the increased militarisation of the school curriculum here in so-called Australia. I sat down with Sana, who is nuclear-free coordinator at Friends of the Earth, and Emma, who is a primary teacher in NAM, to discuss the recent nuclear-powered submarine propulsion challenge launched by the Federal Department of Defence and the negative impacts that an increasingly militarised school program has on young children and their futures. So today I'm joined by Emma and Sana. Thank you so much for being on Tuesday Breakfast. Emma, could you start by talking about the increased militarization of the school curriculum in our country? Mm, sure. 
So I'm a primary school teacher and but I am kind of aware of programs that have been introduced interstate and in Victoria. And the most recent one that um, really came to light and was quite is, is really alarming is this nuclear propulsion STEM challenge that is pitched at high schools, nuclear submarine propulsion, sorry, I should say. And that I guess seemed like just a really direct example of a fairly recent still like federal government policy actually just immediately being uh, promoted within schools and also like this sense of recruitment of young people into developing skills to prepare them, yeah, for designing um, apparatus that would be a part of a more like militarised future. So I think uh, there have been, I'm aware there have been different programs running, particularly in South Australia, there's some sub, subs in school programs that I've spoken to teachers were concerned about there. But I think there have been things like particularly, it comes up particularly in the STEM type learning, so which is stands for science, technology, engineering and maths. And it just, it seems that those areas where the money is almost or where the new and exciting programs are coming from are often can be coupled with either weapons companies or defence departments. So that submarine challenge is actually by the Federal Defence Department. But there's another um, competition or, or sort of um, program I'm aware of at the moment called Beacon, and that's actually a collaboration between BAE Systems, a weapons company, and schools, and that's primary schools. And I think what seems particularly insidious about that program is also that it um, really markets itself as for lower socioeconomic schools and basically providing them with resources and opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. So it just also taps into that sense of underfunded public schools and if you want to do these STEM subjects, there's almost, yeah, that it's being offered by the weapons companies who have all the money. And I think I think it's also interesting to some, like designing the submarines are really explicit, it's quite clear, that um, what's in, that it's connected to defence, or actually those submarines are a part of attack. But also there are others which are more like a Lego. I can't think of the specific details, but more like a Le- Lego contest. But it's actually funded by there's that coupling with the weapons company, and I think we also need to be really strong in opposing those initiatives because I think just where the money is coming from, inevitably there is a bias and agenda. And I don't think it's suitable to have that coming from weapons companies for young people in our schools. Yeah, definitely. I think the the key word there being insidious, it does seem really dark that this is uh, what's happening in schools, especially when you've got programs like you've described before that aren't very explicit about their objectives or the relationship between the funding and these big weapons companies um, because you never really know what, their aim is or what their objective is by engaging these children and um, at times they're quite young right it's not just high school students but really young children. Yeah and I think in the way that you know we think about our responsibility as educators it is 
you know, in the way that I know um, we are guided by, for example, the Victorian Education Department has restrictions on coupling with tobacco companies or alcohol companies or also like weapon, sorry, the manufacturing of arms. But it really seems that in general this um, creep of defence under the kind of under the banner of innovation, that word gets used a lot, I would say is bringing in an agenda that, you know, is about war um, and is not not that removed from designing a gun, but it's not really properly being examined or critiqued. And that's why there's, yeah, some educators and teachers who are really concerned about that and um, are starting to speak up now and organise around it. Yeah, so can you talk more about the feeling that teachers and educators are having about this issue? Are people taking action? What's being done? Because sometimes I feel like perhaps it seems like um, it can be really challenging calling out these really big companies who have a lot of the money. And and like you said, a lot of schools are excited to bring programs to their students because of the lack of funding that a lot of schools are experiencing at the moment. So, mm. yeah, what's happening in the teacher space? Mm. Yeah, it really is a bit of a trap because, you know, you don't want to deny young, like your students, those kinds of opportunities. And it can be hard not to feel like just a naysayer to be opposing a program that appears to be about yeah, innovation and supporting learning in science, technology, engineering and maths. And even some of the programs will really in their language sort of, you know, say how they're particularly for girls or like it's, yeah, there, there are these other lenses of um, equality or progression that even more disguises the kind of the harmful agenda. Um and it's just such a shame that we can't have awesome science technology or there aren't enough science technology, engineering and maths that does also, you know, reserve spots for girls who've like traditionally not been as supported in those subjects. So I think though, particularly with the bipartisan huge investment into these $368 billion submarines and that sense of that commitment to that um, future almost of industry in Australia. It's teachers are realising that immediately that is there's a strategy of that coming into schools and schools, I think it's also it's an endorsing of it. If public schools are teaching and joining in on these types of competitions, it's kind of it is really normalising it. The kids normalises it for the children and then also they're connected to their parents and community. And so the teachers and like the teachers' union, so the AEU importantly have begun speaking out against it. So I'm a member of um, my sub-branch at my school and I'm aware that We've we've passed motions against specifically this submarine challenge and called for a boycott of it. And then that's also gone to our regional meeting of the inner city. Uh, and just on last week, that was unanimously supported at a regional meeting. And it drew the links to the normalising of a sort of militarised curriculum and it was good to have an actual specific boycott to call for because you're right, it does often feel over, overwhelming of how do we take on 
these partnerships with weapons companies. So I think I think the resistance is growing. Um, there are like federally the AEU have are uh, discussing it and they have internally developed a resolution against um, AUKUS and this agenda. I think we're actually hoping to push them as a union to be more public about it and outspoken. I think it's complicated complicated union machinations but I think it's really important that the AU as so many of its members have these concerns and that it shows some sort of leadership in articulating these concerns because it has a strong political force um, and as we saw at the recent Labor National Conference I think some unions were really explicit in opposing this but um, I don't think the AU has stepped up to that full sort of campaigning type position yet. So I think those of us who are really concerned and bringing these motions would um, like to see that happen too because that could be quite powerful. Definitely. And so if there are any educators, teachers or people who work in schools who are really concerned about the increased militarisation of the curriculum and the involvement of these big weapon companies, where would you suggest that they start in in raising these issues Mm. with their schools or with their uh, union branch? I mean, in terms of self-educating, I think there is this great report, Miners and Missiles, that the Medical Association for for Prevention of War published in 2021, and that gives a really good background of some of these partnerships, more in the lead-up to to AUKUS, but gives a sense of the extent of those. And so that's a good resource to share. But I think being a part of the union and then really pushing it through the union channels so the AU is really actively considering at the moment. There are models, model motions that you can bring to your sub-branch because I think it is important that it's um, discussed from like the grassroots level of the union as well as the leadership. So we have a, a group, Melbourne Educators for Social Environmental Justice, who are doing some organising on the issue. But I think even through AEU, like now that it is organising on it, um, contacting them and asking about next steps and even asking about, yeah, whether the federal executive has made those announcements. And perhaps also the other would, would just be Friends of the Earth is coordinating, stepping in and supporting teachers and coordinating um, some concerned educators who are also link up with the campaigns that they're running against nuclear-free issues in general. That was Emma speaking about actions that teachers and educators can commit to in order to take a stand against the military agenda in school curriculums. We're going to play for you part two of the discussion after this next song.
That was Feel It Too, a track by Rona, the electronic project of Kadich producer and DJ Rona Glynn McDonald. So just before the song, we were playing for you a discussion that I had with Sana, coordinator of the Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth, and Emma, who is a NAM-based educator. In this second part of the interview, Sana talks about the overall impacts of the normalization of war, and Emma highlights the importance of teaching students new skills to be able to navigate and adapt to a climate-changing world. There is a big danger of the normalization of of militarization in this country. Can you speak more to that, more generally speaking, um, not just in schools, but in our wider community, talking about, um, yeah, how normalized it's become and also the perhaps downplaying of nuclear risks when we have the involvement of these sorts of projects and companies in our schools? Yeah, just kind of reiterating what Emma already mentioned. Um that the normalization of militarization is is kind of insidious and it um it's promoted as an innovative kind of stem thing and it's it's a kind of a, a brand a positive brand association almost that is created in children from a young age onwards which is a quite a concern for example for me as a parent as well without really acknowledging the harm, the potential harm that these instruments of war that they're asked to design can potentially have upon them later in life. Um, I guess from a nuclear-free perspective, the glorification of of nuclear in a sense of looking at it as an isolated, interesting um, science topic to engage with really fails to acknowledge Australia's significant and devastating history with nuclear. This year is commemorating 70 years of the British atomic bomb tests in Australia on the mainland, and that's really been devastated and and continues to be um, affecting especially First Nations communities that have been at the forefront of these tests till today, seven decades later, and it also fails to acknowledge the the effects of uranium mining that is happening in Australia. Australia is the third biggest uranium miner in the world. And again, First Nations, Aboriginal communities are at the forefront of bearing the brunt and the negative impacts of the radioactive slush and all the negative impact that those uranium mines are having, as well as the um, nuclear waste dumps. So Australia has been trying for over 25 years to impose a nuclear waste dump always on Aboriginal land and and in the six times and recently the last time in Kimba these these challenges to try to implement or impose a nuclear waste dump um, on Aboriginal land have been fought by the traditional owners of those lands and every time they have been won but they've been hard and long battles and they've really taken a toll upon those communities and now with AUKUS coming in there's a heightened risk of a high level nuclear waste dump that is inevitably connected to to the AUKUS deal and so there needs to be some proper thinking about how that nuclear waste is going to be um, held and that we as Australia don't necessarily have to be the international nuclear waste dump 
for the world um, and we don't want to be and it's not wanted on Aboriginal land. So how are we going to deal with that? So it fails to acknowledge all that history around it by just focusing on, oh, look at this exciting science project that that we can do. And I recognize the the complexities of, you know, the the, the lack of funding and that these like the Department of Defense and and weapons companies come in but maybe that's from a privileged position I rather not have these exciting projects if they mean that um, my children will be designing yeah killing machines basically and so the, the Victorian Education Department does have a policy so it, it says that alongside alcohol and tobacco companies schools must not not engage in partnerships with companies inv involved in the sale or promotion of firearms or organizations involved in offensive or inappropriate activity. And nuclear-powered um, propelled submarines are basically, their their main objective is to shoot, shoot bombs. <laughs> and so that is a weapon, a military weapon. And so I think the the Victorian Education Department is actively promoting this this project or this program on their website, and I think it's totally in breach with what they say in their own policies that they should not do. It seems shocking that that hasn't been addressed or or is being actively ignored. That contradiction between between the policy to to keep um, young people. Uh, safe and away from harm, and yet simultaneously promoting these these dangerous projects. Um, I also wanted to just, you know, ask on your view of this from a climate perspective as well. We're seeing increasing, increasing amounts of climate-related disasters here in so-called Australia, but also all over the world. And so it seems as well just <laughs> incredibly irresponsible to promote um, these projects for young people that are inevitably going to harm, you know, the environment and that will directly have an impact on their future as well. So, yeah, war is actually one of the most polluting actions in the world. Like the U.S. Um, military, in, industrial military complex is the number one polluter in the world um, and fighter jets are so many times more polluting than a normal aircraft is and so so there are some real concerns with that of course if if a nuclear bomb were to go off or if for example a nuclear submarine would be targeted and explode which is basically a floating tiny nuclear bomb it would can have really devastating impacts on the environment also the mining and the waste disposal of of nuclear has effect on the environment and I guess from a nuclear perspective as well, like, um, and climate focused, there's a whole raft of issues with, like, at the moment, nuclear power being promoted as a positive alternative to to um, fossil fuels, which it is not. And actually, there's a whole associated risk with climate change effects that it would have on nuclear power which i won't go into now but but friends of the earth has made quite a lot has published quite a lot of papers around this issue so yeah from from an environmental perspective and a human rights perspective there there are huge concerns 
with increased tensions across the world, it it seems to be um, of some form of neglect to not encourage other ways of um, relating to others. So instead of you know building these weapons, seems quite cruel to to not um, instead promote peaceful ways of relating to other to other states and other countries as opposed to um, encouraging our children to to build these weapons and uh, under the guise of defense or or protection. Yeah, and I think. Um... And two things on that in terms of absolutely, Fong, I agree, in terms of what skills we need to be developing even in our young people around diplomacy or even just, you know, understanding and interpersonal skills, intercultural skills. There's so much work to be done in considering the kind of global future and possible tensions and scarcity that they'll be navigating Um, but also for these like STEM type subjects there's nothing wrong with coupling science technology engineering and maths like it and even sometimes art is thrown in there as well and turns into the STEAM acronym but I think as you say there's so much involved in the challenge of adapting to a climate changing world and also preventing uh, the worst scale catastrophes that is going to need uh, the very best and brightest, as these weapons companies and defence department like to say, minds, you know, fully engaged in problem solving, learning, collaborating on not just renewable energy, but yeah, responses, emergency response, and adaptation and collaboration between nations and um, involving these um, technologies. So I think. It just, as educators and parents, and it's just so blatantly clear that, yes, skills will be required for our changing world, but in our view of the future that we want and certainly a future that offers hope for young people, we urgently need to develop the skills to adapt and, you know, um, bring about a more peaceful future world despite the changing climate. So I think that's just where we really need to stand up and oppose these the direction of these types of programs. Thank you to Emma and Sana for speaking to me about the importance of fighting against the military agenda in our school curriculum. If any listeners are concerned about this issue and would like to take action, you can go to www.melbournefoe.org.au forward slash no underscore defense underscore curriculum for more information. Also, for any educators who are interested, there is a national meeting being held this Wednesday, 6.30pm, to coordinate and organise around this issue. If you are interested, please contact nuclearfree at foe.org.au and you can also check our show notes later this morning for more details. Angie McMahon recently announced that her sophomore album, Light, Dark, Light Again, will be released uh, late October, October 27th. It was back in 2019 that her debut album, Salt, came out, and so it's been really great to hear some new music from her again. This next track that we'll play for you is the third single from her unreleased album, and it's called Fireball Whiskey. Bye. 
That song there was the latest from Angie McMahon called Fireball Whiskey. Just a warning for our listeners that the next interview does deal with themes of consent and rape culture. Yesterday was World Sexual Health Day and this year's theme was consent. To talk about consent as a social issue and how we can make a difference through legislative change is Jessica Graham, lecturer and researcher at Monash University doing her PhD in developing a multidimensional theory of rape culture. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Jess. Thank you very much. So can we start by just talking a little bit about the concept of consent as a social issue? Yeah, look, I think that the significance of consent uh, as a social issue really can't be understated. Prioritising education and awareness on consent is important for everyone, 
not least of which because having you know, a, a clear framework for understanding consent um, is important for populations of, of victim survivors and perpetrators alike. Um, and developing a really strong social awareness of consent will help us as a society to work towards eradicating the kind of current culture in which we see coercion uh, as an ongoing issue and a, a large contributing factor to uh, sexual violence. Absolutely. Uh, your PhD focuses on developing a multidimensional understanding of rape culture. What does this look like and how is it linked to our societal understanding of consent? Yeah, so uh, rape culture is a concept that emerged initially within feminist research and activism in the 1970s to really highlight the societal issue of rape and sexual violence being rooted in um, issues around patriarchy, gender and, and misogyny. Um, it's since been used in scholarly research to emphasise and, and define a culture or, or, I guess, an ethos of society in which the prevalence of sexual violence is rife, the incidence of it is minimised and its experiences are trivialised. So um, my PhD is, is looking at how we can utilise this initial conceptualisation of rape culture um, in a more intersectional way that isn't limiting the incidence of sexual violence or values of rape culture to um, only heterosexual um, relationships and sexual encounters. So I'm interested in, in looking at what other structures and factors are there to consider around power um, and what might contribute to a rape culture, which is essentially um, a culture characterised by sexually coercive norms, victim-blaming, stigma and, and legislative inadequacy. Uh, and at the root of that culture is this issue of consent, or, or rather a lack thereof. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, you know, this is something we do explore on our show quite regularly in different aspects, um, including most recently we did a special on AI and how consent kind of looks in the digital space now that, um, you know, artificial intelligence is kind of everywhere. Um, and the understanding of consent within all these different spaces. Um, how does coercion as a tactic play a part in, in all of this? And what do you think people's understanding is currently of, of coercion with, um, you know, when it comes to consent? Yeah, look, I think that um, historically coercion has been framed as a very sort of overt, explicit um, issue of sort of power particularly perpetrated by cis men over cis women within that kind of patriarchal context. And, you know, that, that understanding is very kind of rooted in those second-wave feminist contributions. But I think that since then, legislative reform and scholarly research has really sort of looked at um, consent and, and rather coercion as being issues that are often much more subtle um, and sometimes identifying coercion can be difficult within the framework of explicit um, and overt expressions of coercion, whereby somebody is physically forcing another person to engage in a sexual encounter, which is essentially kind of how we frame sexual violence and rape within um, our societal sort of frameworks and understandings. You know, that, that notion of stranger danger um, but what we know realistically is that the prevalence of sexual violence 
um, and, and the research on this incident tells us actually these um, occurrences happen more often within the context of intimate relationships than they do in the context of that, that myth of stranger danger. And that's not to say that that isn't a type of sexual violence that occurs, but I think what's important about this moving towards a culture of affirmative consent is recognising that coercion plays out in much more subtle ways than we perhaps realise, um, whether that's through sort of emotional manipulation or um, expectations around relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we see this sort of limited understanding of consent and coercion um, all around us in, you know, in the media, in pop culture, in the news, literature, even politics. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about this and how it informs our view of consent as a society? Yeah, look, I think that media representations play a huge role in informing how, as a society, we understand or, or perhaps misunderstand um, issues around consent and coercion. You know, not least of which there is an ample body of, of goalie research looking at um, film and television and how the romanticisation of, of coercion um, is really problematic in moving towards uh, a better understanding of what consent looks like, healthy consent looks like. I mean, one kind of film that comes to mind that I think most people will be familiar with is The Notebook from the early 2000s. And the protagonist is played by Ryan Gosling um, and, and the other protagonist, Rachel McAdams. And their relationship is kind of rife with um, problematic and coercive behaviours that are, are otherwise kind of romanticised and, and uh, sort of play a, a huge role in that story being so popular and so loved that there's this narrative... Uh, that because Ryan Gosling, you know, he, he can't possibly live without her. You know, he, his whole life is about having that relationship and having that connection. And so he's very kind of emotionally manipulative and coercive in his pursuit of her throughout the duration of the film. And, it, and it's not addressed. There's no... there's no uh, That kind of narrative, I suppose, makes no space for conversations about explicit and voluntary consent in an ongoing way. Um, and I think what's particularly useful in an example such as that film is that there's there's no um, explicit coercive behaviour, there's no physical force involved, but it's those subtleties that go un, unquestioned and that are actually part of the romantic narrative that are um, problematic in this, this culture of sexually coercive norms. Yeah, definitely. I think um, that's a really good example. And, uh, you know, for me, I grew up um, with a lot of Bollywood in my life. And so Bollywood also relies pretty heavily um, on that sort of dynamic between between the protagonists. Um, so, yeah, I know that it can be incredibly problematic and the level to which it kind of informs people's ideas of what um, a romantic relationship is and, the, you know, the removal of consent from the whole thing. Um, you mentioned affirmative consent before what does this look like and why is it important especially when it comes to stopping victim blaming yeah look affirmative consent is um, a, a really important sort of shift in legislative and um, education based um, thinking and models and so historically around the space of sexual violence and, and coercion there's been considerable issues around 
establishing objective understandings of what consent is because of the kind of ongoing social norms that we've already discussed. There has often been sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, grey areas in, in defining and understanding consent in an objective way. And so moving towards an affirmative consent model is a way of kind of potentially eliminating those, those grey areas and not really leaving room for more subjective interpretation. Um, and so the, the affirmative consent model um, highlights the importance of seeking and receiving explicit voluntary consent. So this means that each person participating in a sexual encounter is responsible for checking in and otherwise ensuring that all parties involved want to be involved and to engage in that encounter. But I think what's important to distinguish with an affirmative consent model is this means not merely relying on the absence of no or assuming yes through interpreted body language or applying consent of one sexual act to all sexual acts thereafter. So to prioritise sexual health and wellbeing, consent really needs to be an ongoing and reciprocal process. Each stage of the encounter should include affirmative and explicit consent. So to use a simple analogy, um, if I can, you know, just because you consented to drinking the cup of tea that I offered you doesn't mean that I can assume you're also willing to, to eat, you know, the scone that I offer you afterwards. Uh, and just because you wanted to have a cup of tea on Tuesday morning doesn't mean that you will on Wednesday afternoon. And while this is really a very basic way of explaining it, um, it's quite surprising how commonly these types of analogies are considered obvious in the context of tea and scones, but the same can't be said for equivalent circumstances uh, in the, the context of sex. And so affirmative consent is, is relative, um, uh, sorry, and, and relevant to, to all sexual practices. There's no sort of room for interpretation or exemptions. You know, uh, affirmative consent model asserts that despite whether a sexual encounter is new, uh, is casual, is a one-off, or if it's between multiple parties or two monogamous partners, explicit consent should be the forefront of conversation and an ongoing conversation at that. Yeah, definitely. Um, And what legislative reform is needed and, you know, what difference do you think that those changes could make? Well, the Victorian government has recently undergone a legislative reform that's been implemented through this policy on affirmative consent models. And this is a really important step in working towards, at best, eradicating rape culture and reducing the prevalence of sexual violence and, at least, providing more opportunity for effective justice for victim survivors. Um, We know that, uh, historically and in a contemporary context, there are still a lot of legislative inadequacies that mean um, the rate of conviction the reporting rates of of crimes of sexual violence are considerably low. Um, And so by implementing affirmative consent models, the the legislation can um, help us deepen our our legal and cultural understanding of consent and provide us with the knowledge that really holds accountable the perpetrators of the violence who will use often coercion as a tactic to obtain consent rather than um, kind of the culture of victim blaming associated with sexual violence that we currently have. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, having that kind of um, in the law makes will, will make hopefully victim survivors feel more able to, um, you know, gain power back over their circumstances. And, um, you know, it like kind of puts weight behind the whole thing. So, um, 
I think that's really great that the Victorian government is looking at making these reforms. Um, where can people learn more about your research and this issue in general? Yeah, so um, I would recommend that the, the World Health Organization, as you mentioned earlier, um, has provided a lot of important research and information resources on issues of sexual health this year with a particular focus on the theme of consent. Um, as well as some Australian resources, I'd recommend ANROSE, the Australian National Research Organisation for Women's Safety, which is a really important institution contributing to um, evidence and knowledge um, around issues of violence against women and children. Um, the Australian Institute of Family Studies is another important evidence-based information um, source. I would say that um, Sexual Assault Services Victoria, formerly CASA, uh, is another important source of research and information. They provide annual reports and they have ongoing projects around sexual violence, coercion and consent. Um, and they are also a really good resource for anyone who has experienced or is experiencing um, sexual violence and or coercion and, and is wanting some support. Uh, in terms of my research, uh, you can find my, my profile on Monash Len from Monash University um, as well as Swinburne University's uh, PhD uh, page as well. Amazing. Uh, that's unfortunately all we have time for this morning, but thank you so much for joining us, Jess, and talking us through um, these really important issues this morning. Well, thank you for having me. So that was Monash University lecturer and researcher Jessica Graham talking to us about consent as a social issue and how we can make a difference through legislative change. If that conversation brought up anything difficult for you, you can contact 1-800-RESPECT or Lifeline on 131114. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We'll be right back after this. needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Joining us now is Jen Tran. Jen is a Chinese-Vietnamese-Australian designer and community engagement practitioner. 
Jen is joining us this morning to talk about 100 Eggs, Vietnamese Community Music Night, which is part of the brand new puppet festival Snuff Fest, organised by um, the Snuff Puppets in Footscray. Welcome to 3CR, Jen. Oh, thank you for having me. We're very excited to have you. Um, we're big fans of the Snuff Puppets. Um, could you start by just telling us how you got involved with the Snuff Puppets and a bit more about your background as a designer? Yeah, um, so I got involved with Snuff Puppets um, because the Vietnamese Community of Australia, um, the Victorian uh, chapter, uh, was putting on a project um, and they needed a project coordinator. Um, the community were used to running community programs but not used to bridging in with the arts um, organisation um, and so they didn't know how to project organise a um, an arts project. So it got me involved because um, there's only very few um, people in the Vietnamese community that really are involved in the um, kind of like the contemporary arts um, sector. So yeah, it got me involved and um, I project coordinated this 100 Eggs project with Snuff Puppets um, and uh, the Vietnamese community, um, yeah, to yeah, to bridge it together. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's so great. Um, I definitely agree. I think, you know, the contemporary art scene and, in fact, historically the arts um, have often, it's often been quite white um, and so it's always really exciting to see, you know, a Vietnamese production like this. Um can you tell us a bit about 100 Eggs? How did it come about and what story does it tell? Yeah, so the 100 Eggs is about the Vietnamese origin story. Um, and it's about the uh, Lok Long Guang, which is the dragon king, who met um, Olga, which is the mountain fairy. And they fell in love. Um, one was from the sea, one was from the mountain. And they came together, they fell in love, and they had 100 eggs together. Um, and then 100 eggs born the um, were born uh, born their children, so they were the origin um, of the Vietnamese people. And soon later, Lak Bang Guang was missing the sea, and all girl was missing the mountain. So they took 50 of their children to the sea and 50 children to the mountain, um, and then they became the people of the sea and the people of the mountains, um, which is where the Vietnamese people. <coughs> generally, um, yeah, are congregated or, like, are uh, working the land and working the sea. That sounds incredible. Um, how did you decide to tell this story using a giant puppet? Yeah, the um, the story was initially one of um, the Vietnamese community of, Victoria, of, Victoria, of Australia wanted to tell this story um, <clears throat> because it's a folklore. Um, it's for the next generation of really connecting the next, the younger generation of their cultural stories, um, because there's not many of them, rather than continue to tell the boat journey, we're telling like folklores um, to really connect the younger generations with their history and their culture. Um, so <clears throat> it was really um, came up by the, the, the community um, who wanted to share this story. And we had the opportunity to work with snuff puppets to tell a story through giant puppets because snuff puppets do these um, uh, people projects uh, in the community. So that's where the collaboration came from. Um, and, yeah, that's how I was involved because they needed someone to project manage and here I am. 
Yeah. Um, you grew up in Footscray, so you have a connection, um, you know, to, to the space and the place as well. Can you tell us about, you know, the significance of having this event in Footscray that has historically been and continues to be home to such a big Vietnamese community? Yeah, the um, yeah, I was born in Footscray Hospital, um, lived my whole life in the western suburbs, um, and there's such a large um, Vietnamese community in Footscray and around the western suburbs, um, <clears throat> and this is due to the whole migration wave, and we celebrated 40 years, um, I think it was a couple of years ago, um, of being in Footscray with these giant cranes, these two cranes that have been built and sculpted in the centre of Footscray. And so it's like it used to be um, the entrance towards the Little Saigon Market, um, which burnt down um, quite a few years ago now. Um, and so our presence there is quite significant. We changed the landscape of like the restaurants. It's more like, you know, you're really known for our food. Um, and there is a lot of the community um, that is just, yeah, like, Besides um, celebrating, like, health food or just known from just, like, surface level, it's really just, like, what's deeper down, like, and this story gets to, like, share a bit about us in that sense. Absolutely. Um, 100 Eggs has been performed before. Did you get any feedback from the younger generation of, you know, the Vietnamese community in Footscray and what they thought? Yeah, they um they really loved it. So they were performed in um one uh three festivals and the lunar festivals and this happened in between um coming out of lockdown. Um and the the Vietnamese the, the the children really had fun. Um and they did some of them didn't even know the story. They didn't know the um this folklore. And others um, who are the uh, more the young people, some of them knew of it a bit, but they were also very happy to see it in real life to go, oh, this is telling our stories. And also the older generations um, was just so proud to have this out in the public space. Um, so it really hits all three generations to a sense that it's connecting everyone, um, not just through... A traumatic story but through like a joyful a birth story um of where you know of where they come from absolutely i think it's always so important to celebrate the joy um can you tell our listeners what they can expect at the show and does the audience need to know vietnamese to attend yeah so um i i found out this morning that it is all sold out um but hopefully we'll uh, we'll see whether we can um, get some more tickets released. Um, you expect uh, a puppet making workshop. Um, so we have one of the um, a community leaders who'll be running a puppet a puppet making workshop, which you'll make a dragon. Um, there will be food, and then we're going to have a twenty minute um, movie, a animated film of the story. Um, so it will be presented in Vietnamese, however there is um, English subtitles to really like see what the story is about. Um, and then we have the performance. Um, so you'll have the giant puppet of um, Lạc Tông Quang and Orca, um, and then hopefully a hundred of their children will be coming out as well from the egg. And then afterwards, um, yeah, we'll have a little celebration of just 
bit of party and eating and just connecting um, and getting the Vietnamese community to know about snuff puppets and know the arts that we don't have to do just traditional um, dance or traditional um, arts, but how to contemporize our Vietnamese artwork. Absolutely. I'm so excited. I hope you do. Um, you are able to release more tickets. Um, Snuff Fest is happening from Wednesday, the 6th of September, so tomorrow, to Saturday, the 7th of October, and 100 Eggs is happening on the 23rd of September. Um, where can listeners go to find out more about both 100 Eggs and about Snuff Fest in general? Yeah, so there is the Snuff Puppets website. Uh, we do have the Facebook um, event. Um, there's also AVA, which is the Australian Vietnamese Arts um, website and Facebook. Um, and uh, it's definitely on tribe booking. So just look it up. Um, the 100 Eggs Movie Night at Snuff Puppets. Amazing. Uh, Jen, that's all we have time for this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you for having me. So that was Jen Tran, who is uh, a Chinese-Vietnamese-Australian designer and community engagement practitioner, uh, talking to us about her upcoming show, A Hundred Eggs, which is a collaboration between Australian-Vietnamese arts and the Snuff Puppets. We will link to um, all of the websites Jen mentioned in our show notes later today for listeners who are interested in going or just knowing more. We will be right back with our final interview after this. Talofalava, Malo Elele, Kiorana, Fakalofalahiatu, Kiora, Isa Bulavinaka, Aloha, Woman Jacka, and Hello. This is PX Fano on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio, the voices of our community, talking Kwe Pacifica, talking us. Saturday afternoons, 1.30 to 2 o'clock, only on 3CR. Join us as we share the stories of our diverse people, from arts and culture to news and opinions and information about our community, for our community. As a collective, we are all proud Pacifica diaspora, advocating for our people from the LGBTQIA spectrum. This is presented by the Pacific X Collective and produced on Wurundjeri land in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne. We're going to play another song for you now this morning. This one is from indie vocalist based here in Nam. Uh, the name is Chitra and she has just released her latest single of the year and it's called Go Easy.
track there was Go Easy by Chitra. Chloe is a professional staff member of the Faculty of Arts, University of Melbourne. She is also a delegate and health and safety rep for arts and the vice president professional of the UniMelb NTEU branch. Chloe joins Tuesday Breakfast again this week to give us an update on the strike that took place last week and the response from university management. Welcome back to the show, Chloe. Thanks for having me again. Uh, For our listeners that may not have tuned in last week, uh, would you be able to start by recapping what led to the seven-day strike and what the main desired outcomes were? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we basically have had very little uh, movement from the university and um, several times have missed their own bargaining deadlines, like asking for a two-week extension and then taking 11 weeks to get back to us. And so we had just had enough and we thought it was time to escalate. Um, And also we have uh, six key claims um, with, I think, the major ones at the moment that we're focusing on being um, uh, secure jobs. So we want an 80% secure jobs commitment from the university and also um, action on workloads, which are at crisis. And so far the university has not come to the table on those. And am I correct in thinking that you've been in bargaining for about a year now? Yeah, over a year now. So can you give us a rundown on how the week went and if Unimail Management came to the table with anything? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Monday started with a half-day strike, so it was actually um, the whole branch was out on strike and then we had also the um, areas that were out for the week, so it was sort of a, a big day. Um, we had a rally um, outside Raymond Priestley, which is the building uh, that all that sort of chancellery um, uh, housed in and, and the VC. Um, and yeah, it was huge. We had amazing speakers um, and we had, I think, about a thousand people attend that. So that was huge. Um, and at 3pm that day, um, after our rally, we got a pay offer from the university Um yeah, so I don't know whether that was planned by them to try and kind of entice us off strike or whether it was just a response to the size of our rally. Um, but the thing that was missing was the secure jobs offer that was supposed to accompany that pay offer that they had promised us. Um, and so we waited out the week. We had a you know, huge um, strike. So we had five different areas out for the full week. Um, it was a huge week of amazing, um, you know, teach outs and rallies and all kinds of stuff. Um, we got to the end of the week and at 5pm there was still no um, uh, secure jobs offer. We did get a response to our heads of agreement um, proposal, which was um, a number of different uh, claims that we thought we, um, I guess, were sort of close to the university on settling. Um, and their response to that was like a traffic light document. So things in green are things they agreed on. Things in yellow were things where um, they maybe agreed on something but not all of it. And then things in red were where there was no agreement. And I think there was one green came back on that. And the only thing that they agreed with us on was the name of the agreement and the expiry date of the agreement. Um, so they really haven't come to the table with anything. Right. <laughs> um Yeah. Okay, so my next question was going to be that last week you kind of were talking about how management need to also play a key role in regulating workloads and mitigating that rising workload for staff, but that there wasn't any recognition that that was even an issue. So my guess is that that hasn't shifted throughout this week or have you? Yeah, okay. 
sorry. Um, yeah, no, it, it's exactly the same. So um, what came back in that document was just saying that, um, you know, we're trying to put a positive duty on the university to have to regulate those workloads. And basically they've said that, well, employees have a duty as well. So they're basically just sticking with the approach to um, sort of put it back onto individual staff members to have to do with regulating their workloads, which, as we know, is just, it's not working. Um and, you know, I think a lot of staff feel a lot of pressure, you know, and are afraid to bring up workload issues um, because they're afraid of, you know, how it might make them look or how their manager might respond. Um, so, yeah, so they absolutely haven't moved on that. Um, mm. I think the only thing they suggested was that it might be in universities' interest to fill roles um, quickly. Um, but because that was one of the things we put up was that any vacant roles should be filled um, in a you know a short period of time. So um, that staff in teams are picking up the workload of somebody um, who has left the university of a vacant role. Um, but they've suggested that that's a matter that is going into policy rather than into the EBA. So even where they kind of, we have some agreement, they're really resistant to actually agree to putting it in our um, EBA agreement and uh, trying to instead um, put it into their own university policies, which um, I think the problem with that is that staff have shown that we don't trust the university um, so I just, yeah, I don't think staff are going to be happy with that approach. Um, I think if policy was working, I think we wouldn't have so many issues that we have right now. Mm, for sure. And if one of your uh, main desired outcomes is secure work, uh, it makes sense that, you know, taking issues to management when you're not sure if the work is secure or not can like just add a whole other layer to uh, all of these things. Yeah, for sure. So what's next for the Unimelb NTU branch in continuing to bargain for better conditions? Yeah, well, um, so yesterday uh, we actually walked out of the bargaining room um, <laughs> because uh, the university did not provide that secure um, jobs offer. That So the university actually asked for a two-week pause on bargaining so that they could prepare that. Um, so that actually came from them. And once again, they missed their own deadline. So we went to the table yesterday, um, but because no offer had come through, um, we basically said to them, um, we're not going to continue this if you don't provide us what you promised. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's not good enough. You haven't given us anything. Staff are really waiting on this. And now we have to go back to staff and tell them that once again, you've let us down. So we actually walked out. So, um, yeah, so that was, yeah, pretty <laughs> pretty dramatic, I guess. I don't think there's been a, a walkout in bargaining thus far. Um, and so at this stage, the bargaining team, we won't be meeting again with the university until they provide us with that offer. Mm. And last week when you joined our show, you, you touched on how, like, improving staff working conditions will impact positively on a student's experience and uh, another issue added to staff, you know, having increased workloads and everything else uh, could impact students' learning. So I was wondering if you have a sense of how students responded to the strike or if you had support throughout the week. Yeah, the students have been incredible. Um, so, you know, I mean, staff, like teaching staff have already also been doing a really great job at, you know, um, making statements in their classes and explaining to their students what the strike is about and, you know, how that it will be a short-term impact on them, but it is fighting for kind of a more, a better long-term um, sort of arrangement. And the students have been really receptive, um, really positive um, we've had a you know a couple of different groups of students supporting the strikes who've been incredible. Um, so we were really lucky, and we also had like a, a few days of um, 
like heat outs and things on strike that students, many keen students came and attended those. So yeah, we've been um, incredibly lucky with the student response. Um, and yeah, most students from, you know, my colleagues who I've spoken to have said that their students have been really receptive and that students, um, I think when we put to them, you know, the sort of deteriorating learning conditions, um, they can see how that's related to the working conditions and, and kind of the lack of investment um, in, you know, students learning from the university. And so I think they, yeah, have been, um, yeah, really receptive to that. And so we've been really lucky to have, um, yeah, students on board. Um, so it's really nice to have kind of that, I guess, coalition between students and staff that, um, you know, I think the university can't turn around and say, you're harming students, because I think the students are saying, well, you know, you could make this better for all of us. So that's been really powerful. Mm, totally. And I think it's interesting that this is all happening at a time where university fees are just going upwards and upwards. And so mm. if students can recognise that, you know, they're not then seeing uh, a, you know, benefit in their education, then it's just going to make it harder to digest for them, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, students see the deteriorating conditions, they see their class sizes going up, they, um, you know, like they experience it, the, all the difficulties, the difficulties getting help, the uh, long turnaround times. Like one of the amazing um, speakouts that happened this week was staff from Stop One, which is our like sort of one-stop shop for student inquiries. And we heard how some teams just have so few staff in them and they're all precariously employed. Um, and the way the university has just gutted some of those teams that um, we've, you know, heard stories of um, people having to withdraw from... Um, courses because um, they couldn't get their um, like AAP which is like an academic adjustment plan so that's kind of um, uh, a plan that recognises that students might have like um, a disability or an issue um, like a mental health issue that would impact on their studies and because they actually um, couldn't get that approved before the census date they actually had to withdraw from their course and so you know these terrible turnaround times um, you know also in like the student services um, have been impacting students as well. So I think students really have been feeling and experiencing that. And so I think, um, you know, when they hear people talking about the union and, and bargaining and stuff, it really rings true to their experience. And we really feel for the students because what the university is providing them is just, it's really not good enough. Mm, totally. And are you hopeful that at some stage you'll be able to come to some form of agreement or see some sort of positive change in this space? Yeah, I think we're still hopeful. Like, I think, you know, I think yesterday was quite powerful, walking out and making it clear that, you know, we're not going to, um, you know, we're not going to speak to them unless they provide us with what they promise and unless they keep those promises. So I, I hope that that um, makes them realise and that they, um, you know, will come back with that offer. Um, and, yeah, I guess we're hopeful that things will... Um, you know, improve at the table, that the university will, will basically, you know, come back to the table. But um, I think also members are really angry and frustrated and I think they're prepared to take more action um, if the university doesn't do that. So, um, you know, I think for the university, it's either they come to the table or, you know, we will pressure them back, I guess. So I think that's definitely the feeling that we've had from speaking to staff is that, um, yeah, they're very disappointed and, and ready to do what it takes to get the university to come back and give us a, a reasonable offer. 
Mm, for sure. Well, unfortunately, Chloe, that's all we have time for this morning. But thank you so much for joining us to give us an update on how the strike at Unimail went. And we would love to continue to have you on the show as updates uh, come up through this bargaining process. That would be amazing. Thank you for having me again. Thanks, Chloe. So that was Chloe, a staff member at Melbourne Uni and NTEU Vice President for Professional Staff, talking to us about the strike action that happened last week. And that is all we have time for this morning on this jam-packed show. Uh, Just a quick rundown of what we had on the show this morning. We started off uh, listening to a conversation that Fung had with Sana and Emma about the increased militarisation of the school curriculum here in so-called Australia. Uh, We then spoke with uh, Monash researcher Jessica Graham about... um, Uh, consent and rape culture in light of World Sexual Health Day yesterday, um, this year's theme being consent. Uh, At 8 o'clock, we then spoke with Jen Tran, who is a designer and community engagement practitioner, about her upcoming show, 100 Eggs, um, as a part of Snuff Fest. And we just ended there speaking with Chloe from NTU at Melbourne University about the strikes that are ongoing there and um, what the update is from our conversation last week. We will be back again next Tuesday. Stay tuned to breakfast shows for the rest of the week. And as always, Accent of Women is coming up next. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.